Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way with Anoa. Really excited for this combo. Got a chance to talk to Kat Calvin, founder of Spread the Vote. Oh, it is such a joy to talk to not only another amazing, progressive, political black woman, but someone who also nerds out and does the whole sci-fi comic book nerd girl thing as well. Um, yeah, so this was a really cool conversation. Kat and I talked about several different things, including how and why she started Spread the Vote, um, as well as a couple other initiatives that she's been involved in. I mean, every time I turn around, Kat has a new landing page and a new handle for some other, you know, uh, it's like pop-up shop politics in a way. Uh, really admire her courage and tenacity. And um, also special shout out to my girl, Fallon McClure, who is here in Georgia. Um, she is the state director for Spread the Vote here in Georgia and really looking forward to connecting with Fallon as our DSA chapter does some more direct, um, you know, mutual aid type work that kind of has a bent in that electoral direction. Um, you know, it's it's been really interesting, you know, past week or so, we saw the New York chapter of DSA, which if folks understand has like, it's huge, um, grapple with the decision to endorse Cynthia Nixon uh, for governor. And here in Atlanta, you know, we've been having similar conversations. Um, Metro Atlanta DSA is a really thoughtful group of people, as are many people that I've been meeting across the various DSA chapters. You know, I know there are folks who are like, oh, my God, Red Rose Twitter. Or there are folks like, yay, Red Rose Twitter. But like, quote unquote, Red Rose Twitter is not the full actual representation of DSA. I think that there are many amazing people who do engage in these different conversations and battles, etc., but when you really get on the chapter level and you start talking to people, I'm I'm so excited because Netroots is this week in New Orleans. And I'm really excited to meet folks from the DSA chapter in New Orleans. So I'm really, you know, one of the comrades is actually picking me up from the airport. Sweet. But um, yeah, so I really think the more we're able to build in community and conversation with people offline, right? I mean, I get why we're all involved in, in, in this space social media-wise. And I know we all can't be at every meeting. I know we work. We have children. We have elderly parents. We maybe have disabled people. We maybe disabled ourselves, you know, disabled people in our lives that we're helping to provide or care for. We may be disabled ourselves. We may work multiple jobs, right? Or we may not really work at the level we need to be working. So having to do extra travel and extra stuff might be cost prohibitive. I, I feel this and I and I understand it, but a good phone call with 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 someone that you've been building with or you know how can I help provide value to this one issue can go such a long way. Um also another shout out because you know I love to represent good people doing good work. Members of the Afro Caucus and DSA, y'all are life-giving, wonderful, beautiful people, and I'm so looking forward to build and 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 talk about practice and practice. Um, yeah, so getting into my conversation with, with Kat, um, oh, wait, another shout out, because you know, I love the people. 
shout out to all of you who listen to The Way With Fanoa and you know, I have been struggling from switching from, and I've talked about this a little bit, what does it mean to organize now full-time in an electoral, you know, organizing capacity as a member of an organization? It's a bit of a learning curve, you know? I mean, yes, you know, I can roll and kick it with the best of them, get great feedback from the team and stuff, but at the same time, it's a lot. It is definitely a lot. It's been a lot of traveling, a lot of being on the road and stuff. So I'm trying, I'm still trying to work this out and get a good flow to bring you guys better content, particularly as we're going into the 2018 midterms. Um, we'll try to do more little social media snippets as I'm on the road too, which could be pretty cool and interesting. But it's really been about trying to balance, like building out this platform and this social media and the the podcast, and then also building out my work within the context of the organization I am working for. So it's been a challenge. And in the middle of this, I'm still raising two amazing teenage humans so, yeah, <laughs> there's all of that as well. So, um, there, there there are many great conversations coming ahead. I'm really looking forward to next week. I will be interviewing um, Eric Dracer, who writes for Counterpunch and several other um, outlets, as well as Insay Otifat, who is the executive director of New Georgia Project. And I think I have a pretty dope conversation with actually Insay and Eric Robertson coming up down the pipeline because, um, and then hopefully I can tag someone in from from from, from Project South too, because I really do think we need to talk to Southerners. Um, I'm not a data Southerner. I really do think we need to talk to Southerners, those who've been, you know, raised, reared, grown, and really look at, you know, what does it mean to organize the South? What does it mean to bring revolution to scale? And how do we really actually move progressive moving forward electorally while still building collective access and power like that's what we need to be talking about because quite honestly the very academic conversations that are happening on twitter and these very one-sided reactionary responses that are coming from quote-unquote all sides um because we're not having the nuance and analysis that needs to be happening when we're responding to someone who's criticizing thomas frank either in defense of thomas frank or in opposition to the nuance is not happening and to deny that we do have people, even in our midst, who when they talk about working class, they are coming through a lens of whiteness, it's problematic. On the flip side, to assume that people only mean white when they're saying working class is also problematic. And we need to talk through that. But that's also part of the representation and depiction that we have in a reductionist media economy that only focuses on storylines through particular narratives. I mean, how long did we hear that it was poor white people that put Trump in office when the data actually says otherwise, right? Like, you know, so there's a lot that's going on and there's a lot that's going right, though. And I want to start talking to you more about what's going right. Yeah, we'll get into the weeds a little bit. We'll we'll do a little of the criticism and critique and analysis. Um, but I want to talk more about what's going on that's going right. Because I there's a lot that's going right. And I think we need to understand that we are just two years post this Bernie Krat, you know, progressive movement wave electoral explosion, uprising, insurgency. There has been, to be clear... This did not start with Bernie. Bernie's an amazing fixture, right? Um, but you've had so many other people who maybe n didn't jump out there for a presidential election cycle and have built around them what was built around Bernie. Like, let's just be real, though. We built this. I've been saying this to you guys for over two years now. We built this. When you look around and you think about the, the digital platforms, all different tools, like, yes, you know, getting him elected was our common collective goal, 
But ultimately, what has happened, looking at folks like my, my, my brother Jack Rabbit out in Philly and, you know, his involvement in the municipalism movement and, and working with the folks in Spain and from people all over the country, like to down south and Jackson to California and Humboldt, you know, like, like there's so much amazing stuff that's going on. You know, shout out to Andy Ellis and the, the Baltimore Green Party folks. Like, you know, whenever I criticize the Green Party folks, I do pivot. Back to Andy, because what I've seen with Andy and Josh and all those folks is a real concerted effort to build community, to build understanding of what their politics are, what they're trying to do. I mean, um, you know, Dr. Margaret Flowers, I just got elected, I think, to a national position within the Green Party, I think, if I read the announcement correctly. But she was another person that I found really refreshing to talk to and does not talk in this really high academic style even to be as educated and well-versed and all this stuff as she is like she talks in a way that the average person can really understand and relate to what she's talking about so that is what we need right I mean all that really high flute in language is cute for the punditry and stuff but that does not help us build the base on the ground build the coalition build the solidarity that we need to move things forward and so I appreciate those who take the time to break it down about, you know, different constructs and issues and explain it in a way that the average person, working parent, you know, working person, person holding down several part-time jobs, this person who's on public transportation, hustling, bustling, making it happen, or just, you know, somebody on the go can understand what you're talking about. So salute to everyone who does that work. Um, yeah, so I'm excited that I get to kick it with some of the folks from DSA NOLA, I really appreciate the work being done by my own chapter here in Atlanta and the building and the desire to look at what is happening here politically in Georgia and, and, and effectuate what we can as what we see as a stepping stone to change. Now, it's not incrementalism. It's not settling. Like looking at through a lens of within our values and what we have going on, how can we help move the state and move our communities collectively forward? So um, there's some really good stuff happening. You know, there's some really good smaller, you know, orgs and work. And I mean, seriously, if you're literally just on a block and you just have you're just just worried about a few block radius, you are doing something. Right. If you just have the kids on your block and you're, you know, one day a week teaching something or one week in a month teaching something or helping them or you gather up some of the kids it's like, yo, let's go talk about this or let's let me teach you a skill. Like all of that is so valuable, and important because you're giving something very necessary. And there's so many things that we don't think of that are life skills and life tools that really are important and matter. And it's just really you know, the electoral stuff that I've, as I, the more and more I do this, the more and more I, I dig in deep and talk with candidates and really get to see how they're building their operations. It's, it reinforces, you know, what I say about it's only one tool. Because one, we need people to still stay there and support them. But part of that support that we give beyond electing people is also accountability. They need us to hold them accountable. And we have to build that into whatever processes that we are involved in. So I'm going to put a pin in it right there. I'm going to turn you over to me and Kat. Like I said, there's some giggles. There's some giggles. Moment. I mean, it's a very serious conversation. Again, love Kat. But then there's a moment we have similar brains. And all of a sudden, we nerd out a little bit. And then we come back to it. It's pretty cool. 
Um, so yeah, so looking forward to some snippets and a collection of stuff from uh, Netroots coming. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Peace. So I am joined by a pretty amazing person that I met last summer. Um, Kat Calvin is the founder of Spread the Vote, among several other amazing, awesome startups and opportunities. Um, I first met Kat, Kat was speaking on a panel, actually, uh, talking about voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression down here in the Atlanta metro area. And I was like, who is this woman saying all the right things about how <laughs> party, well, no, seriously, because like, you were talking about how neither party has really done the greatest job. At pre- I mean, obviously, Republicans have their issues, but, like, we all know that. But, like, acknowledging that part of why you started Spread the Vote was because Democrats actually weren't stepping up to fill the void in certain areas either, right? And really, those of us who are out here in the trenches, we have to make sure it gets done whether either party does what they ought to be doing or not. And so I just I just had to talk to this woman, and so I had to learn more about what you were doing and, 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 and why you even had these radical ideas that you did. And so here we are a year later. Um, you know, amazing work happening all the way around, and, and you've really jumped out there and been willing to say what's not always popular, but recognizing that it's not about popularity contests when literally our lives are on the line. So um, thank you for all the work you've been doing. It's amazing watching it all unfold. But but I just, you wrote two pieces on Medium recently. Um, and one was, for those who haven't, you know, checked the description because the links are both there. Uh, one talks about, you know, everyone's been protesting. It's been like, what, 18 months now. We've had massive protests all over the country, but unfortunately, oftentimes these large gatherings of people are not being directed into specific streams of work, right? And, you know, the protests are cool, but they're not being followed up with really clear specific... Now, some folks, like Indivisible, some folks have been doing a much better job of that than others, right? But, like, one of the things you pointed out in in the first of the two articles that that I um, really found that frames this whole conversation... Uh, really dug into that 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 notion of how you can't just bring together thirty thousand people to protest, or or in the case of DC level marches and protests, you know, hundreds thousand hundreds of thousands of people. You can't just bring folks together and then not have like real action items beyond that. And so, like, kind of, what was your thought behind that? And then, because it seems like that's been a running undercurrent through your own work too, like making sure. Even if you're saying, like, this is wrong, there are actual concrete, actionable steps involved that people can kind of pick up and and go with as they move along. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much a broken record. And (laughs) say and tweet and scream about the same three things and have been since, I don't know, for the last 20 years, since undergrad. I'm, oh, dear Lord, that was 20 years ago, if you sound older than I am. I'm, but, you know, I... I think for the first part of your question, like what, why do I sort of constantly hamper on this? And why is that such a a big thing with me right now is that I've spent my whole life personally trying to figure out how do I make a measurable impact in the black community, a Mm -hmm. measurable impact. I'm not tattooed on my forehead, but like, you know, I was in theater and that was, you know, my whole like youth and I majored in theater or whatever. And if you're, you're in the arts, 
it's not about measurable impact, right? Like you're not going to draw paint, you know, paint a painting and then chart on a spreadsheet how many like lives it changes or whatever, right? Like that's mm-hmm. not the point of art. But the point of activism is to make a measurable impact. And so, like, if you can't go to bed every night being able to chart on a spreadsheet what you've done, then you're wasting time because you're actually trying to accomplish a thing. And if you study every movement ever in the history, um, and I highly recommend for your readers uh, or your listeners this great book called This is an Uprising I'm by Mark and Paul Engler. I'm looking at it at my bookshelf right now. Sorry, I know the authors. I'm, it's a really fantastic look at modern social movements and how they were um, designed as sort of the different theories of sort of activism and, and, and creating sort of civic um, and social change, uh, how they follow them, et cetera. Um, and I find that, and actually Stokely Carmichael's autobiography, Stokely Carmichael is mm. the shit, and his autobiography is incredible. Yeah. But one thing he does really well in it is he lays out the logistics of how the movement operated and the, the what parts SNCC played in the SCLC and the NAACP and, you know, how they moved. And if you study, you know, Gloria Steinem and the women's movement and the way that they worked and, you know, Chavez and Fuertes and the way they worked, and you can see that tradition still on the Omokali Coalition of Workers, where I'm, like, obsessed with in Florida. And if you look at the gay rights movement and how that operated, like, they were all run by organizations that had clear objectives, that had strategic ways of getting to accomplishing those objectives, and that used protests as a part of the larger program, Right. Protesting just to protest with nothing else doesn't do anything. It has to be protest along with, you know, multiple streams of of strategic thought and action going towards what's happening in the streets, what's happening in policy, what's happening in the judiciary, what's happening economically. They they all have to go together. You don't make massive social change without a freaking plan. And that's, like, it's so obvious, and yet people really don't think about that and think, oh, I can just go out in the streets one day with a poster, maybe I'll knock on a door, and then that, that will change the world. Well, it won't. I'm, and I always, always have been the girl saying, what's your plan? <laughs> I'm not doing this unless I understand right. strategy. I will sit down and help you think of it, right? That's always been me, but since November 9th, 2016, it has become much more imperative because now we're not necessarily trying to make social change, although, and this is, of course, what's complicated about this time that we're in, is that we still have all of these issues that we're trying to address and trying to fix, but at the same time, our country is on fire, and we're trying very actively and very realistically to stop a fascist takeover at its tracks when they've been working on this for 40, 50 years, and we're on the defensive because we're always on the defensive. And so now I think that if you are, you know, if you before this period were running a movement and you were running it without any measurable goals, without any strategy, I could be irresponsible. I would consider that you probably don't care as much about your issue as you say you do, because if you cared, you would care enough to read and learn and be as impactful as possible. I would say a lot of things. Right now, if you in this movement, in this moment, claim to be operating in a way that is going to save this country and you don't operate at the highest possible level of strategic 
uh, thought and in planning and efficiency and everything else required to actually reach that measurable end goal of saving this freaking country, then it's unethical and it's un-American. Like right now is not the time for you to be putting out a big protest because you want to raise some money and get a lot of names on your list, right? Like right now is a time when you need to be operating in a way that's going to save this country. And it's a very real threat. And so now I've gone from annoyed and frustrated to angry because I'm trying to save my freaking country. Right. I mean, I think that's a really <laughs> also well, well, here's the thing, right? This is a problem within the way our entire system of social justice work and nonprofit work is like completely set up, right? Like as much as people say they have these missions and want to do well and fight the good fight, I mean, a lot of it is built upon making sure folks can keep their own jobs, right? Like 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 I remember mm-hmm. when I first came out of law school and went to work in Chicago, um, I remember when I first learned the term poverty pimp, right? Like, like I, I had never really heard that conceptualization in that way, but like listening to the community folks talk, talk about, cause they didn't realize that I worked for the organization I worked for because they, they uh-huh. were usually represented by white, white lawyers at these meetings with the community. Uh-huh. And like, they thought I, I don't know who they thought I was. They thought I was an intern. I don't know what they thought. <laughs> they think I was the lawyer in the room. And it was so funny listening to them, Ken. They were like, oh, I guess they decided they wasn't going to come this time. I was like, no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm right here. And they were all like, I'm like, did you guys not pay attention like three weeks ago when I get introduced to you? And they were like, honey, we don't listen to white people when they open their mouths. And it was just so hilarious because they're like, everything that comes out of their mouth is just something to pacify us while they go get another grant to come study, mm-hmm. basically. You know what I'm saying? But not actually do anything. Like, we're getting grants. Like some, you know, you know, like folks are getting grants that isn't actually doing something that's actually actionable on the yep. ground, yep. but it's just literally to, you know, keep building up that organization. And it's just like, you get to a point where the capacity, you're building capacity at your organization while at the expense of the actual communities, the issues you claim you're supposed to be helping. And you're absolutely right about this moment, right? And not saying that people shouldn't have jobs. It's a really weird, weird conversation, right? But at the same time, if you're spending more time trying to keep employed than you are trying to resolve issues and serve the communities or, you know, in this, when we're looking at this broader resistance moment, like, we're literally fighting fascism, right? Like, like this is not a drill. Like, this is not the time for civility conversations or any of this other stuff. This is not the time to be worrying about raising the most money for your list to sit on it. Like this is the time where we really need to be like building the coalitions, expending the resources and getting out there and having everyone, if we're going to mobilize people, we need to mobilize people to direct action. And like you're saying, have measurable results, right? Like not just how many more people can we add on our lists and be able to send folks to more and more conferences. Like, it's just like, there's just this weird, there's this weird level of, you know, self, like congratulatory behavior that literally translates into nothing in terms of the average American's life. And it's like, it's weird once you get on this side of, you know, the work to see like how it all unfolds. And, and I think like when you wrote that piece, like I really liked it. And I was like, are you sure you want to put this out there? Because you're going to piss a lot of people off. But you were like, it's what I've been saying. And that's why I gravitated towards you. I'm like, cause you literally saying what I say too. But, like, you were on that other side of it and, and, and saw it. And it's just, like, 
how do we, you know, how do we do that though? So how do we start taking these big ideas and putting it into concrete work that is measurable, that, that we can actually, you know, start saying we're doing something? Like with Spread the Vote, how did you come, can you tell everyone, like how did you come to Spread the Vote? Yes, I I will. Uh, and then I want to sort of go back to a thing, but I think they connect. I'm or not, and we'll find out as I keep talking. <laughs> I'm, so spread the vote. <laughs> I spread the vote. We get IDs. I'm. It started as getting IDs for eligible voters and voter ID states. What we found very quickly is that when you don't have an ID, it's about a lot more than voting. But being mm-hmm. able to get a job get housing, medical care, you know, all the things you need to sort of live a life of full citizenship. So we sort of expanded that. So we get IDs for people that they can use every single day of the year for everything they need it for in life. And then also to vote and we make sure we get them to the polls. I'm, and it very much started because I am always looking for the most practical, measurable, efficient, you know, thing that I can do. And, you know, we've, well, and, and this is another case in which, and, and this connects to sort of your larger question about what do we do, uh, which is build a time machine because, you know, look at voter ID laws. Um, the GOP has been working since 2006-ish and a little bit on and on and with more and more momentum, testing voter ID laws in a variety mm-hmm. of states. Um, the GOP have this incredible organization called ALEC. I have had, I can't tell you how many drunken conversations mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. where we're all screaming, why don't we have an ALEC? We should have had an ALEC. We didn't, it's too late. I'm, <laughs> so they were working because they're so good at long-term strategic thinking and at working together because they having big tents we get a lot of opinions which is why we never actually narrow down and do a thing they don't have that problem I so they worked and worked and worked passed voter ID laws in Georgia your home state of course was one of the first to test this out I'm also in Indiana which was not under uh, the jurisdiction of section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and so they could test some things out there without the Department of Justice getting involved I am to the same extent I am and so then they got a case to the Supreme Court, Shelby County v. Holder, mm-hmm. in which she, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, guess what, you guys? We have a black president. There's no more racism. Yay. Throw a party. Also, get rid of all protections for voting. Um, and that's when we immediately saw a significant increase in voter purges, which the Supreme Court has now, of course, said is legal. It's when we saw... Um, an increase in how drastic gerrymandering and gestation got in certain areas. Um, and we saw a massive wave of voter ID laws, literally within two or three hours of Shelby County beholders, the decision coming down from SCOTUS, they were already working on bills in the Texas state legislature and the Alabama state legislature, right? Like they were ready for it. They knew what they were mm-hmm. doing. They were ready for it. Um, we, however, on... I and what well, I don't know if say we because I don't know where I stand in this, but but you know Democrats and progressive groups did not move as quickly. I'm shocker. And when some private groups moved, uh, because the the DNC and the actual party never actually really did anything. I'm um, except join some lawsuits, you know, but they they didn't take action. And when they did, it was all right. Let's sue and seek judicial remedies, or let's mm-hmm. try. I you know. In a much, to a much smaller extent, to to try to find some you know 
political remedies, I, you know, whether it be through lobbying or through seeking policy changes, et cetera. None of those worked. Texas's voter ID laws have struck down five times by the courts and they still have one, right? They don't work. They want these laws. Um, and so after the election, when I was trying to decide, all right, what, I mean, it was pretty obvious that the world was on fire from then. And I realized, all right, I need to like quit my job, get back into acting, uh, you know, organizing and activism and like figure out what my thing is going to be because the world just was lit on fire and it just seemed obvious well if people need ids to vote then let's just get them ids that's what we do i'm it is it's just it's practical you know that obviously from it sounds simple it's not easy which is why they do it i'm but that And that is, you know, the way I look at things, but I think that when we're looking at this bigger picture of what can, you know, 68 million of us do um, in order to, to stop, it's not even creeping fascism anymore, it's running at us at full speed, about to head on a speeding train, yeah. you know, what do we do? The problem is, A, we're too big, right? Like this country is so big that it's very difficult to organize across the country. And so doing sort of, I'm, you know, pulling a move like South Korea did where they were able to just really protest like crazy in the streets until they forced the president to resign. It's harder for us to see that because of how large we are. And then when you add to that, how extremely affluent we are, right. And the fact that we have babies in jails, but we also have, you know, new shows being announced that are coming at HBO and conferences and all of these things and everybody's food and everyone's out for happy hours. It's, we're so affluent and you see this over and over in history, but people don't see what's coming because as long as you have bread and, bread and roses, right? And this is one of the, my favorite things about the Hunger Games books is but the reason that they called it Padem is because they knew if you just keep people fed and entertained, they will ignore everything else that's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we will. Mm-hmm. And then you add the fact that it's, it's so hard to believe that it could happen here. That like even as we're seeing it, like nobody is, or I guess I did, but very few people. And I, I don't have, you know, kids or like I have a cactus that's always on the verge of dying. You know, I got a dog a few months ago. These are the sum total of my responsibilities. And so it's a lot easier for me to sort of quit my job and take full-time action against this, most people can't do that. And so even right. if you understood what was happening, like you still have to be able to feed your children and pay your rent and your mortgage, right? And it's, we're so caught up in the lives that we're living and the world that we live in and the way that it's set up, that it's set up to trap us so that when this happens, we can't take action. Right. I'm, that being said, I was just talking to Jen Hoffman, who's this uh, fantastic... I'm writer actually in Oregon, but after the election started something called the Americans of Conscious Checklist. I'm, and she told me about this research being done or that has been done that shows that in order to either stop or remove a dictator of whatever stripes they may be, fascist or not, I, that it only takes three and a half percent of the population, which mm-hmm. is... 11 million people in the U.S. I'm, and this is this is something that I actually just a couple of days ago she told me about, and now I'm sort of obsessively reaching it or researching this because I think they have this whole idea, and I'm looking up the blog where this is so that you guys can 
read it yourself. Oh, okay. So the woman who wrote her, her name is Erica Chenoweth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did all of this great research because she, um, this may be why I like her, but very much came from where sort of I frequently am, where she thought, okay, there's no, there's no way that you can overtake a fascist government or win any sort of large, you know, political or civil resistance battle without violence, right? And um, so she did this huge research project because, I don't know, she's a PhD and that's what they do, um, but found that not only, so it's this sort of revolutionary idea that you have to that three and a half percent of the population can actually, like, that's the tipping point to pull Malcolm Gladwell into this of what it takes, like, when three and a half percent of the population resists, that is when you win. Um, but also that over two to one, peaceful resistance movements always went out over violent resistance movements. And when violent resistance movements win, they are more likely, like by far, to result in either military governments or violent, unstable governments. Whereas peaceful resistance movements are more likely to win and more likely to install new peaceful democratic institutions. I'm so it's that is that has been the thing this week that has given me a little bit of strategic hope, right? Like I'm constantly reading these books, I'm constantly trying to figure out how do we actually stop this? What do we do? And you know, some of all these listeners with progressive leaders, and you guys, they have no idea what to do. And this I've been reading on so much of Erica Chenoweth's work and, and like diving into her her uh, footnotes and whatnot, and this is sort of what my weekend will look like, I'm, because she has this new research that I think is something that we need to see. Um, right. And she has this great blog, Rational Insurgent, which I recommend, too. Okay. Okay, very cool. Um, like, <laughs> no, 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 because, like, there's so much information, right? And especially in light of... I know, I'm sorry. You know, well, I'm no, 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 I'm not, no, 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 no. I'm not even, I'm not even thinking, because you and I, even if we don't absolutely agree on approach or different things, we can at least have a conversation of equals and talk about stuff, but then not get so distracted that we forget that there's real people and real work that needs to be done. And that's something that you talked about the other piece you wrote um, recently, that, okay, there's this, all this fuck shit going on with Russia um, and the person who occupies the White House, et cetera, but we can't lose sight, get so caught up in that that we lose sight if there are these really very real other issues that have long existed, particularly when we're just talking about our electoral system itself, that are very much American homegrown problems. Like talking about what you're, what you've been working on with spread the vote in terms of voter suppression tactics through voter ID. I mean, there's just, we talk about election protection. I mean, I live in one of the few states that has um, machines that actually apparently are actually hackable and have no paper trace, that paper trail. Even though the Russian hacks and you know this type of interference raises these considerations. These are issues that can be very well exploited domestically, right? And this is stuff that we should be trying to organize around and do something about. 
and yet the conversation is so stuck in one lane. So no, I appreciate when you share other points of views and other research, et cetera, because it is a conversation we should be having. But to echo what you've written about earlier, we can't lose sight and forget that there is this other work that is not consistently being, you know, supported and engaged in. Um, not by everyone. There are definitely those people like yourself and others who are doing this, this type of work. We're talking about voter outreach, suppression, um, voter, you know, just, just, just increasing access to the ballot box, right? I mean, you know, expanding the electorate is this great buzzword everyone has right now. But, like, what's the point of expanding the electorate if people can't actually cast that final ballot? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a matter of having to pay attention to more than one thing at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we have to, right now, put everything we have towards stopping this government in its tracks and taking our democracy back. But at the same time, we need to be thinking about, well, what is that democracy going to look like when and if we do win again, right? Because if we, you know, get... Uh, you know, a Supreme Court that is more fairly balanced, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, Democrats take over Congress and and we have a Democratic president or whatever. And then we continue to build the world in which it, the, the way in which it exists currently with a broken criminal justice system and with massive inequality and with massive poverty and with millions of people who don't have basic access to health care a broken education system and all these other things, then what is the point of taking the country back, right? Like, it will continue to break like this over and over and over again unless we fundamentally change it. Mm -hmm. And so we have to pay attention to both things at the same time. We have to get Trump and the Russians and the white nationalists and everybody who are in power right now out of power. And we have to do it as quickly as possible because they're burning every institution to the ground. But then we have to decide how we're going to rebuild it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And in the process, of, so so we have that, that's like more of a, I mean, that's somewhat, that's a macro, micro type of thing we're going on. And we're trying to figure out and work that out. But we still have, you know, the issues of everyday life, right? I mean, people can't even go to CVS and, you know, turn in a manufacturer coupon or go to the pool with their kids or or, or, or just play outside with their kids, apparently, without... One of the nice white ladies, one of one of one of the Beckys with bad habits, you know, picking up the phone, call the phone, uh, making phone calls and calling nine one one over the most basic things. So we have these other issues, right? And then at the same time, it just seems like there's a whole, you know, generation or segment of the population that has just had their brains just broken and are literally calling the cops over every single damn thing right now. And it's like, what is wrong with you people? Who raised you? Like, where did you learn to call 911? Like, 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 who socialized you to do this? And it just seems like what can people sh ought to be able to do something about it because if the police aren't going to require something, I mean, on the one hand, you want people to be able to call and prison abolition, police abolition folks, don't get mad at me right now, relax. But we, there does need to be some mechanism when something's going wrong that you can call some entity, whether we call them cops or somebody else, um, to come and resolve and address a situation that actually requires outside intervention. But somebody you don't like at a pool 
should not give rise to calling any type of authorities on anyone just because you feel like you're entitled. And you kind of have taken up another project, in addition to all the other work that you've been doing, to kind of address, like, what we've been seeing in this rise of these unnecessary police calls um, and, and, and interventions in the most ridiculous of scenarios. <laughs> I, I have. So, I mean, yeah. I, the, the Becky with the smartphone problem has gotten worse, I think. And I, I've been trying to figure this out. Maybe you have thoughts on this. I'm Because obviously this happened a lot before, and we just didn't have cameras with us at all times and the Internet. Um, and so now we're able to... To actually have, you know, witnesses to this behavior, mm-hmm. but they seem to actually be increasing. And I am really confused about whether, like, people are pulling out their phones more and more and more, or if people are calling because they feel this sort of defiant, like, the whole, like, I'm not at Starbucks for not having... I don't even know what they want, like a crucifix on my cup. And so I'm going to go buy a Starbucks just to throw it away type of like just stupid defensiveness. And so that they're calling for everything because they know people are getting called on for it. Like I honestly at this point, I'm just like, like essentially why are they still doing this? Like people are losing their jobs. People are losing their companies and reality shows over these things. And yet they're still doing it. Um, and so whether it's a matter of, you know, the attention or or whether it's because losing your livelihood apparently isn't enough of a deterrent or whatever it is the fact is we have yet to find a consequence that makes people stop doing this uh because they have i mean how many people have lost their job at this point it's literally like one person a day (laughs) and yet this is still happening i'm and so you know i'm a lawyer and I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, well, is there a way that we can use the power that we have to make these things stop? And I'm, it occurred to me, and not just me, I mean, obviously, this is something everybody's saying. I just, I thought maybe there was a thing I could do about it. Um, but that there, there has to be grounds for a civil suit, right? Like, you're, there are people who are harassing children, right? And, and, I'm misusing police resources and all of these things. And so I sort of sat down and started to think, what are some different ways that we can use the law, which fails us sometimes, but sometimes can be useful, I'm to make people understand or think twice before they call about what the consequences are. Um, so I started something called Civic Equity uh but you can go to suabecky.com. Um, and I'm, it's working on two things. On the one hand, we're recruiting pro bono attorneys to be able to provide legal advice, counseling, and possible representation, if, that's, if it comes to that, to victims of Becky's. Um, and so you can go on our website, and if you're a victim, you can tell us about your, you know, what happened to you and, and uh, upload that on a form. If you're an attorney and you're interested in volunteering uh, to help a victim, you can fill out on the form that way. And so our hope is to at least provide these victims who, uh, you know, have dealt with harassment among other things and you know finding a lawyer is hard and it can be expensive and for us to be able to find a way to at least have them 
connect with someone who can provide them that advice um, and counsel and, if necessary, representation. Um, on the other hand, um, we're partnering with the um, American Constitutional Society, which is um, this great sort of progressive volunteer legal organization. And they have thousands of volunteers across the country. They do some awesome volunteer work with uh, Spread the Vote. And so um, what we're working on is, A, first of all, researching, you know, nationally and then in, in each state, mm-hmm. what are the grounds for a suit, right? Like, what, what are the, the things that we could possibly pull out of this in order to create some consequences? Do some really deep research on that. And then we're going to put together briefs that we'll put on our website so that whether it's our volunteer pro bono attorneys or whether it's any other attorney or victim or whoever who's out there who wants to pursue legal action, we'll provide some briefs that say, hey, you know what, here are, here's some grounds and here's what it means and here's sort of aberrations in each state and, and this is, you know, sort of what this looks like. Of course, I, you know, hopefully hoping that that person will connect with an attorney or that an attorney will be able to use those um, to pursue legal action and, and hopefully, you know, maybe between knowing that there is a civil suit that they could lose and between knowing that, you know, now we're starting to see the police arrest some people and that they're going to be, you know, I'm aired on Twitter and everyone's going to find out who they are. They might lose their jobs or be humiliated socially or whatever. We can find enough consequences to deter people from making these idiotic phone calls and make them think twice I'm about whether, I mean, is this person really doing something or am I just racist? And then decide, oh, I'm mm-hmm. just racist and put down the phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Like, and I think, I think it's like, you know, we've seen a couple of different articles in various outlets, like wondering, pondering, but I really think it's awesome that you jumped out there like, Hey, this should be a thing. We should actually do this. Um, because like it really is of it's not just it's not just simply obnoxious right and it's not just simply a nuisance these instances one i mean they're beyond embarrassing i mean especially if you're like with kids depending upon how long i mean we don't know the potential you you, you white folks literally mm-hmm. the potential of what they could be doing to and we we're, we're seeing this predominantly it's been predominantly black people black families we're seeing this happen to i mean we know we we saw uh a Muslim um, class, it happened to uh, recently, they were all at the pool and stuff and hijab yeah, and yeah. other stuff too. It's just like, we don't really, I mean, not we, they don't understand or they don't care what the potential consequences are when you have cops showing up. Uh-huh. Because just as we learned that the, the term routine traffic stop, right, means nothing. Like, it, it literally, yep. there's nothing routine about traffic stop. Like, there really is a a fear of interactions with police unnecessary, you know, of, you know, with a lot of us who, whether we... Well, there should be. They right. kill us. Absolutely. Somebody called the cops because a 12-year-old boy was playing in the park and they murdered him within seconds. Like, it's a, it's a real fear. And white people at this point, they know. They know that when they call the police on us, there is a good chance that we will end up dead. They know that. And they're still calling. And honestly, I think every brown person in America has a class action suit against all of these people because how many of us 
now every interaction in a store, every interaction in a thing, it's like, is someone going to yell at me? And I can't tell you how many of my friends and probably yours have been like, I wish the buddy would. I had my camera ready because now like we are all, and it's not like we weren't all living with all kinds of fear anyways from the day we were born. And now all of us are always thinking, is it going to happen to me? Am I going to be the next viral video? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it has to, it has to stop. And that's such a real, a real thing. But and then everyone, I think, I think going back to what you were saying about, is it just that this is happening more frequently, or are people just pulling out their phones? I mean, I think it might be a little bit of both, right? Because I definitely think people are pulling out their phones like ready. Like I was having lunch with a colleague earlier today. He's white, but he was telling me that he there was an interaction happening. He just came back from vacation with his family. They were at the beach. And, like, something, he was, like, he was afraid that something could happen when he saw, like, a large black, I think it was, like, a, a black family on, like, family uh, reunion, you know, they all just pulled up at a beach. And I think he just, yeah. on, because of everything that we've been seeing, he just was on heightened alert with he and his wife. He was, like, he, I just had my phone ready in case anybody tried anything with this group of people because it was predominantly white people at this beach. This other larger black family comes up, and he just said, you could just tell the change in the, the mood along, the, even though it's outdoors on the beach, he's like, you could just look around and just tell people's mood and attitude just change. And he was like, I just had my uh-huh. ready just in case. Like, you know, I had my wife on alert that just in case we needed to be prepared to do something. And I was just like, that is so odd that we're starting to think that way, but it really, it isn't odd because it is the proliferation of what we're seeing, but I do think it's people are picking up their phones and pressing record or just going straight to streaming more frequently. Yeah. But then also, then yep. I wonder if there's like some weird hell mouth or something that was unleashed when Trump got elected. Like I'm a big Buffy fan, so folks forgive me, but like same. Just oh yay. <laughs> Okay, so our next podcast is going to be all about our feelings about the reboot because I have a lot of them and I need to talk. Wait, to are they about really? It. I know somebody will mention. Oh, wait, you here? They is it really happening? It. It's really happening. It is like trending on Twitter happening. Oh my god, I have to look this up. I'm sorry for the break in conversation, guys. But lo, yo, like I, this is way more. We actually, we actually do need to have a conversation about. Not just this reboot possibility, but but even your idea of what we should what we should have seen in a Doctor Who universe like that. This is like oh. a break, everybody. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Can we discuss how deeply unhappy I am with Doctor Who right now, and how I need the BBC to call me immediately because this is an emergency. Changes <laughs> need to be made. Look. <laughs> I just, we need a I separate just, podcast. We should have we do. a pop culture podcast. But we should just, oh you. my God, we should just do a pop culture podcast. That would be so smart. We should. Wait, Did you ever read television without pity? No, but I have to. Now. <sighs> well, no, it's dead now. It's one of the great media empires to have been murdered. And by media empire, I mean snarky oh. TV blog. But it was a great... It was all TV show reviews, but done in the snarkiest tone possible. So obviously, it was like my love child, and I'm and they just died one day. But it was like they saw TV the way I saw TV, and it was beautiful. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is being rebooted. <laughs> oh my god! Like I'm literally just finding yeah. this out, everybody. Like I. I mean, like, so what? Is the new Buffy going to be Kendra if it's a black girl? Like, I'm just just trying to... Well, right. She's going to be a black Buffy, which we all know how I feel. And I, on many people on Twitter feel this way, too. But I 
I want Atomic Blonde and Proud Mary. I do not want Ocean's 8. I believe that women deserve their own stories and black people deserve their own stories to everyone else. And I don't want a freaking female James Bond. I want to kick ass female super agent with her own stories. And so if they're actually just making it Buffy and they're doing it over again, but with a black girl that's dumb, they should just do the Buffy, you know, spinoff. Other than Angel, they've been up in history. I'm with a black girl in her own story. But I don't know anything about it because they literally just announced it. So I can't judge yet. No, no, no. Absolutely. That's what I'm just saying. So what's so crazy is I now, like, once we're finished talking, I have to screenshot. I have to send this to my dad because my dad is also a Buffy Buffy fan. Oh, that's like, great. Actually, my dad's actually the guy. So true story. My dad's actually the one that actually got me to watch, take Buffy seriously. Because I remember, what was it, the early 90s movie or late 80s, early 90s with Chris? Oh, God. I love that right. movie so much. I do. <laughs> but I was like, there's no way I'm watching a TV show about this trash. And my dad was like, no, no, no. You got to check it out. Because he's all into everything, sci-fi, occult, like all that stuff, right? So love Buffy, and then, of course, watched Angel as a spinoff. Angel is a very yeah. different show from Buffy, though, but I love David Bacchanas. Yes. But anyway, another another, another Me too. But, um, but, yeah, so this is so wild, because when we saw the, about the Charmed reboot, he he never watched Charmed, though, but we saw the Charmed reboot, he's like, what do you think about this? And he's like, I know you watched it. I was like, I don't know how... I'm weird about reboots. I'm similar to you. I do not like when we just remake white shows or white characters as black or some other group. I do believe that we just need to make people like their own folk, like their own show. Like, well, there are so many stories that haven't been told. Tell those. We have not run out of stories. Like, I am here in LA. Well, like the black feeling I know is driving mm-hmm. through LA, just screaming out the windows. We have not run out of stories. Hoping that we some producer not. hears me because, because like, you know what? Like, we would be upset as all high hell if white people redid the color purple. Like, <laughs> I can't even imagine what happened. I can't imagine a white sugar Avery. I'm sorry. It'd probably be like a Dolly Parton or something oh like that. Like, oh, I well, do not we do even need know. more movies about Dolly Parton. Huh? I said we do need more movies about Dolly Parton, we but do. not as Shug Avery. No, as not as Shug Avery. No, not at all. <laughs> but, 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 but this is a really interesting, like, weird segue we took here, thinking about representation in these conversations, because I do think the same thing we're seeing in our media, whether it's our news, whether it's progressive side media, mainstream media, whatever, like, you know, the best representation in media right now, sadly, is with this alt-right crap that keeps popping up in my damn Facebook feed. They have so many damn black people running their mouth about how evil the Democratic Party is and how independent they think they are. And it's like, no, you're not. You're working for some conservative, you know, trash outlet that is really trying to convince people basically not to vote. Like, it's another form of voter suppression, I feel like, with Candace Owens and some of the other ones who are out there, like, doing this, this whatever it is they're doing. But it's an entire brand, black conservative talk, uh, a, a mass as self-determination when really it's like you're not you're you're a tool of another entity another kind and really you're actually doing a more massive disservice but it's connected to what we're talking about well it's all, but, but it's go ahead sorry, sorry. well i just, yeah, just with them they're also they're not genuine it's a grift right like Absolutely. if you and i tomorrow decided to be Trump-loving Republicans, we would be on Fox News by 2 p.m. We would have a TV deal by the next morning and a book the day after that, right? Like, 
look at Diamond and Silk and Candace Owens and all these people. Like, it is a grift. They do not believe a word they're saying. Like, it's obvious because of the way they say it. But it's just an easy way to get famous and make a lot of money. And there are always going to be grifters out there. I wish I had a little grifter in me. I would have a lot more money. I right? wish like, I had just... a little grift in me. Well, that's what we talked about. We would, you know, like your Twitter, we were talking about Twitter followers, right? Like, I mean, Twitter. Oh, my God. We would be able to we would be able to go on speaking tours in our blue vest at the Oscars, right? I mean, like let's here if we had a little grift in us. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, if I had a little grift in us. Um. Yes. No. It. It. And so I think that when we're looking at the damage or influence that those folks have, I think we have to look at it a different way. I don't think there are any black people being sold by Diamond and Silk, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to make the maggots feel like they're not racist because they like these two sassy black girls on YouTube, right? And that's what they're there for. And Kenneth Owens is there to make them be able to say, well, I'm not racist because I really like this smart, sophisticated black person who's saying a thing that I agree with, right? I'm because weirdly they're also proud of being white nationalists but also need to feel like they're not racist they're they're so confused i've given up trying to understand them um but you know you they are not there for black people like maybe they'll convince a couple of straight black folks to come their way and that's fine but that's not what they're there for they're there to reinforce the beliefs of the maggots right like that's what sheriff clark exists for Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Sheriff Clark is making money and he gets to go to parties and he gets to wear flair. So I'm sure he's happy. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but that's, that's the part of um, the thing, right? Like, I don't know. I've never been able to fill out, figure out Armstrong Williams and I don't even try, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I really don't. And, and, and like, there is another person who's gotten big on, like, MAGA Twitter who I'll see every once in a while because other people will, like, quote tweet him to, like, attack him or whatever. But he's a black person. But he's actually someone that I met when I was an undergrad who was introduced to us as, like, you know, a successful black engineer role model type of person. And I'm like, some days I want to print out his, like, Twitter feed and email my old dean when I was – before I switched out of engineering – and ask her, like, do you know what the hell your mentee is up to? Like, this is disgusting. Because I know she wouldn't stand for any of that stuff. I used to work for her. But it's just really, really interesting to see how easily, unfortunately, so many of us will share this stuff or gravitate toward it. Like, see, yeah, this is right. It's like, okay, just because someone is making a good point about something you don't like doesn't mean you give them the you can help them increase their reach because they're also saying a whole lot of stuff that is just absolute crap and really has no positive forward moving motive it'd be different if we actually had a black media that was being really critical on these issues and these parties the way we needed to but that was also informing and engaging and unfortunately we have a lot of folks out here like you to use your word have a lot of grift in them they don't just got a little bit of grift they got a lot of grift so there might be mm-hmm. proof mixed in there, but I mean, but that's this whole, that's this whole space, I guess, but it gets really difficult for us when it comes time to trying to mobilize around issues because I'm, I'm like having to unfollow or mute or unfriend people <laughs> right? because they keep sharing this stuff 
And it's like, look, stop sharing this crap. This is crap. Stop sharing it. We can't complain about the system and propaganda. And you're literally sharing propaganda because it, it, it talks about the system. Like, it's still propaganda, though. It's still actually a part of the system because it's still keeping you somewhat ignorant. And, and it just it gets mm-hmm. into the rest of the conversation we were having about how do we move people into action? How do we have sustainable, um, you know, actual, like, measurable impact on community? Like, you know, we have a lot of people who are like, well, voting doesn't matter or the parties don't care about us. And then they're sharing this type of stuff. And it's like, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, right? Because our our voting and engaging in these systems and doing what we literally need to do, like, like you and I were just talking about, we have literal, real, actual fascism, right? Like, at the doorstep right now. It's not some distant academic conversation, like literally what's happening right now. And it's not just the babies who are being, you know, the kids who are being separated and locked away from their parents. It is not just the issues we're seeing with what's happening right now in terms of undocumented folks and even folks who do have quote unquote proper documentation now being stripped and downgraded. It's it's literally the function of the way this country is engaging with black and brown people on a regular basis and at all levels, whether we're talking about just, just the, the school systems, through the ballot box, through, you know, the criminal justice system, healthcare, all types of stuff. And then that gets into a wider group. Like we can't keep having these weird academic conversations, you know, on the left or in these other spaces. It's like, well, Democrats are just bad. Like we got to evolve our conversation beyond, or Russia is evil. We have to evolve beyond these just silos to really figure out how do we get to, like you were saying in the beginning of our conversation, measurable, actionable change that's actually moving us forward and creating better opportunities for people and their communities. I mean, we do have to think about that. I think I think the thing that's difficult right now, I think the thing that's stopping everyone right now is that there aren't a lot of measurable, actionable ways for us to stop what's happening right now, right? And right. so, like, and this is, and then this is, again, I mean, to think about two things at once, we need to be working every day and in many ways more critical now than ever on coming up with measurable ways to help and support the, you know, protect the most vulnerable in our population and to be working. I mean, my God, climate change, right? Like none of us talking about climate change and we're all about to just get washed away in the floods, Mm. right? Like there's so many issues because all of the apocalypses are just converging at once. Um, and so we have to think about all those things, but at the same time, we have this, you know, bear running towards us. But the problem is there aren't a lot of ways to stop it. And this is why midterms is so critical, right? Like, we literally have no real options um, politically to stop anything that happens, right? Because we don't have any checks and balances anymore. And so, you know, we have this SCOTUS fight that's happening, which we don't really have a lot we can do about that, except, you know, really focus on, like, the two senators who might flip, maybe, but then they'll just bring in another person, right? Like, there's there's not a lot there. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court is tied at 4-4, so, you know, go have fun with that. I'm, you know, and, and there's no way for us to, for instance, impeach Trump, right? Because we don't run, you know, Democrats don't run Congress and the people who do obviously are not going to because there are a list of reasons as long as my, you know, arm to impeach him. Uh, and so right now, 
the focus politically should be on, needs to be on, I think is getting more and more on midterms because the last gasp of chance for this country is that we win midterms and Democrats take over Congress and are actually able to stop some things from passing and are actually able to, you know, investigate things like baby jails for which there hasn't been, you know, like a real hearing about. Um, and then we can sort of start looking at, well, how do we, how do we build an advance from there and what can we do and what kind of checks can we have and do we impeach this guy? And then we have Pence through his force, et cetera. Um, but we have to think about those huge, huge things for which right now, other than win midterms, there aren't a lot of other measurable things we can do. At the same time, we have to be thinking about the everyday things, right? So my day job is getting people voter IDs so that we can, you know, make a contribution to the polls in November while also getting them IDs that will help them in their everyday lives. And then my side project is, okay, there's also this issue with white people calling the, uh, the police on black people who are living their lives. And is there a thing that I can do for that as well? And, and we do have to think in that, you know, big picture, what do we need right now to save our democracy and this, what do we need to do right now to both help us save and protect the people who live in that democracy and so that we're prepared to build a better democracy moving forward after we get out of this huge fire that we're in. And it's really, really, really hard and it's really confusing and most people don't have time to sit around and think about it. And we don't have any good leadership really on either side of the aisle. And so it just, it makes it really incredibly difficult. Um, and I right now am focusing on, all right, three and a half percent, 11 million people. That's something I can wrap my head around. Let's figure out how does this work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's so wild that you're doing really meaningful engagement as your main thing. And then your side thing is still another level of very meaningful um, level of engagement and work. Uh, so like, but it's, I mean, like, what do you do for fun? Like, <laughs> why do people always ask you things? that? I know, like, people, I hate when people ask me that. I actually, I actually had a, someone I look at as like kind of a organizing mentor tell me I need to get a life recently. My kids, <laughs> like too. and they were like, well, you're young. I'm like, I'm not that young. I'm at a weird age, though, because, like, I'm not, I mean, like, my age is not the problem. It's the fact that having kids young, my kids are actually the same age as people who are older than me, right? So they're either, either I have friends who are my age, either who are single, and so they live a completely different schedule than I do, like, I'm a homebody, or they're younger, so they have, they're younger, they're younger married couples, but they're around their age, but they have younger kids, right? So they live a completely different life, and they're in bed by 9 o'clock, Right. Or I have folks who live this, like, other life, and I'm like, I can't keep up with the young kids no more. Like, my ankles hurt. I need to go lay down. So, like, someone <laughs> literally is on a Friday night um, recording podcasts or doing research and, and, and to get started for work for the next week or just figuring out how can we, like, you know, stand in a gap on some other issue. Like you were saying, we have so many things that are converging all at once that really do need our attention. Um, so I know we can't keep going at this pace because burnout is a real thing, but how do you find a way to balance all of this stuff 
with regular just just living life? I like well, I don't. I'm because right now everything is on fire. We have very little time to stop the things that are happening, and I am in the you know the fortunate position of you know, not having kids or that many responsibilities mm-hmm. besides a tiny, adorable dog um, who gets babysat by his grandma. I'm, you know, and, and so for me, like right now, I know, all right, I'm in a space where I can do more of these things and list more because there's so many people who, who legitimately can't. And I, like, we have a choice. Like, the world is on fire. I'm, you know, and so for right now, like, I do the things that I need to do in order to maintain my sanity and health, you know, and I work out every day and I meditate and I read and I play PS4 and things like that, because you do have to do things <laughs> just to stay sane, but I'm not out having a life. I'm, all of my friends are also doing resistance work and we only ever talk about this. And, you know, if I go out to like see a movie, I come back and work for a few hours because we, it, we are in a real emergency situation right now. I'm, and you know, in, 2021 when we have a new president or in 2034 when we're released from the work camps whichever actually happens you know there's space to have a life but right now we really like I know it's really hard to grasp and I know that it sounds insane when we say it but we really are at a war in this country and we really are in real danger and we really do have to put everything we have right now towards saving this country. And, you know, so for me, that means whatever life I may want to have, it's going to have to happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. 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 No, I absolutely agree with that. And I do appreciate, I mean, I guess we have had our moments. We've, we've managed to catch lunch and, 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 and chit chat. <laughs> exactly. Like, like step away and, you know, um, but I, I do appreciate what I do appreciate the most, I think, is being able to have conversations like this with people like you who get it, who are in the trenches. And so I feel a little less stressed about the impending doom because at least I'm not the only one that see. because I think I'd be really like losing my shit if I was like the only one around who saw or understood anything that was happening and nobody would listen. At least there are like some other people that I'm with. And nobody's listening. Mm-hmm. All of us as a collective. So at least we have each other. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> which, which is, which is, it's, it's a weird silver lining to have. But I appreciate you so much for taking time to talk to me. And I actually do think the podcast, the the pop culture podcast, is a great idea. Um, oh my gosh, we should do it. It would be amazing. We totally should do it, and we should definitely follow up and have more of these conversations. And I'm so happy that we actually finally got to do this because we kept saying for the longest we were going to have a conversation. And life and schedules and et cetera, but we finally made this happen. And yeah, we need to make the, the pop culture thing happen. I think that would be great. So um, appreciate you lots for joining me this evening. And guys, check out Cat Spread the Vote. Check out the Medium blog, um, and, and definitely follow Cat on Twitter. But don't follow Cat to harass her. Let's just be real. <laughs> Twitter harass her. Thank you. You can follow and show support and retweet, but if you're gonna go there harass her, just 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 save it, okay? Like that's the worst thing. <laughs> I'll retweet you, then you'll be like, oh my god, your followers. Why are they even like, mentioning? <laughs> they do that to me it's too. True. I'm like, like, I know. Why do you hate me? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's because I have very very inquisitive and engaging 
mind. Just be gentle with the people I send you guys to. Please. They're real people <laughs> who I love and respect. Uh, we we got to work on that, y'all. But no, seriously, though, sis, I really appreciate you for taking the time. Really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And, you know, thank you again for, for leading the way and and helping to spread the vote, helping to bring Becky's in check and, and all types of stuff. Because um, we need it. We need it. Well, thank you. You're also amazing and doing great work. And um, this was fun. I know. I'm, it, we've been talking about this for so long. I'm glad it finally happened. Awesome. Well, this has been another edition of The Way of Fanoa. Uh, you guys, stay tuned next week. We are coming back, like, you know, with a vengeance and um, switching jobs and really digging in with midterm elections and looking ahead, not just 2020, but there's a whole lot of ground we have to cover between now and then. So good conversation with good people doing good work. We are back better than ever. Talk to you guys soon. Peace.